The following message was given by Eric DeBoer on Sunday, January 14th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org. Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric DeBoer, and if you haven't noticed already, I am a teacher. Uh, my, my day job is I teach uh, middle school technology at a uh, school here in Richmond. Uh, so being in a school gymnasium uh, with kids uh, is really helpful. Just kids, just so you know, even though I'm a teacher, you today, this morning, you don't have to put one finger up if you need to sharpen a pencil or two fingers if you need to go to the bathroom or three fingers if you need to get some water. Just talk to your parents and you can handle that uh, on your own. But uh, no, it is good to be here together as a church family. Um, I'm Eric and one of the elders here. And uh, we come together every Sunday as a church to, to gather, to worship, to pray, to serve, to encourage, to read. Uh, and um, today I get to be the one who unpacks uh, God's word together with us today. And we'll hear what his spirit has to say for us. Um, so speaking of, of teaching, uh, in 2007, uh, a professor at Carnegie Mellon named Randy Posh gave a lecture. Professors do this all the time, but this one was a little different. You see, Dr. Posh had been diagnosed with cancer in his liver, and he only had a few months to live. Carnegie Mellon has a tradition of giving professors one last chance to, before leaving or retiring, to talk to the student body. Um, and Dr. Posh's 2000 talk on lessons he learned throughout his life has racked up millions of views on YouTube and sold millions of copies of his book called The Last Lecture. In a sense, 2 Timothy is the Apostle Paul's last lecture. Uh, this is his second, Paul's second letter to his beloved friend Timothy, and most scholars believe this is the last letter Paul wrote before he was martyred for his faith. This is Paul's take on life and its lessons and its challenges. You could almost call it a, a gospel-centered last lecture. Today, we're going to look specifically at 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verses uh, 16 and 17. It's on page 996, if you got one of those Bibles as you came in. But in order to get some context, we're going to start at the beginning of 2 Timothy, chapter 3. The Holy Spirit inspired Paul to write these words, which is why they apply to us at Redemption Hill in 2024 as much as they did to Timothy around 65 AD when they were written. Let's stand as we read God's word together. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. For among them who are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. 
Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth, men corrupted in faith and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and suffering that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Well, evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. You may be seated. So just in that one chapter, we get to hear Paul's heart for Timothy, his warnings, his personal encouragement and advice for how we can live a God-honoring life, but also applies to us. I mean, that first verse says we are all experiencing difficulty, and I bet all of us are experiencing some difficulty in our lives right now. But there's also a list of sins of people to avoid that I would bet a significant amount of money would apply to each one of us in this room. For being proud, to loving pleasure, to being discontent, to heartless, to, yes, kids, did you catch it? Catch it? Even disobeying your parents made that list. And can you think of a better descriptor of our internet-filled culture than verse 7 of always learning and never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth? Our information age throws so much noise at us, and very little of it is truth. Thankfully, Paul lands on that truth in the last two verses, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time today. All scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. To continue with the hiking analogy Jan gave us last week, let me share with you the map so you know where we're going today. Uh, we're going to be using this passage to answer four guiding questions about reading the Bible. What to read, when to read, why we read, and how to read. So that first part, that first word Paul gives us here is what part of scripture does God want us to read? Paul uses the word all to start this sentence. And usually uh, that word is a bit of a red flag for me. Um, my wife and I have realized that in our marriage that whenever one of us starts using those frequency words of always, never, none, all, that there's usually an issue on our hands relationally. I mean, I don't always leave my clothes on top of the dresser and not folded and put away. And she doesn't, just rarely, uh, she doesn't never take out the overflowing recycling bin from under the sink, just infrequently. And I don't need all the chips, just most of them. So as humans, we have to be careful with how we use these words in conversations because we are finite, fallible, and limited beings who always love hyperbole. God, however, is not any of those things. And he's not being hyperbolic as he's saying this. We're not used to that. 
We're used to people making promises they can't keep and letting us down. This pattern can lead us to mentally or relationally take protective measures to guard ourselves to prevent disappointment or hurt, especially by those who love us most. And while this makes sense for us as our human relations, that makes the mental shift difficult when we try to apply that same reasoning to God. I mean, he's the one who's making crazy promises like, I will never leave you or forsake you. And in all things, God works together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Or even his last words to disciples, behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. We hear these frequency words coming from God and struggle to believe that they are true. But in our passage today, Paul begins with all to describe the part of scripture that is breathed out by God, all of it. This includes famous passages like John 3.16, Romans 8.28, Psalm 23, but yes, even the genealogies in Matthew, the census totals in the books of Numbers and Chronicles, these family trees and quantities show us God's faithfulness across generations. His promise keeping, the story of redemption, the use of imperfect people to accomplish his perfect will, the royal lineage of Jesus. God wanted each of those names and numbers included, and each one has a story behind it. We get glimpses of some of those stories, but God put each name in for a reason, even if we don't always know or understand what that reason is. So after Paul establishes what scripture we are to read, he immediately gives it an authority and a source, breathed out by God. Now note that Paul is the one writing this and crediting God with it. While Paul's hand may physically be holding the pen, the Holy Spirit is the one inspiring and revealing God's word in language form. It's the authorship of God that makes super, scripture supernatural and authoritative, guiding us toward godliness. Now, the breath of God is, is really interesting. We first hear about it in the first page of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now that word for spirit can also mean wind or breath. So we could read this verse as the breath of God is hovering over the face of the waters. Paul tells us in Romans 8 that that spirit, that breath of God, dwells inside of us. This means that that same spirit who inspired these writings is inside of us, willing and eager to help us interpret his word. We only have to turn to Genesis 2 for the next example of God's breath. When the bush of the field was not yet in the land and no small plant in the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and watering the whole face of the ground. God is the first underground sprinkling, sounds like. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Did you catch it? The first CPR example in history comes from God giving life to what was not life by his breath. What an intimate image of the creator of the cosmos forming man out of dust and breathing the breath of life into him. We believe that our creation, our salvation, our rescue, our redemption, our glorification begins with God 
and not with us. Jesus uses breathing to symbolize the Holy Spirit. In John 20, after he's resurrected, he appears to his disciples and says, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. This fulfills the promise he had made just a few chapters before in John 16, when he said, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. This Spirit of truth is the Holy Spirit, is the breath of God, is the scriptures, is Jesus. This is the power of God's breath, giving us life and sustaining our lives. We see Jesus and God breathing out these scriptures. We see him empowering the disciples with it and helping us interpret these teachings. We have his breath present from before time began. We have God's breath being the source of life for humankind. Could this breathing apply to us as it did to Adam? When I was younger, I remember hearing a pastor talk about God's name of Yahweh. And Yahweh, you may remember, is the name that God gave to Moses when he asked, what, what should I call you? Who, who sent me? Uh, it's the burning bush in Exodus 3. Uh, he asked God what he wants to be called, and God says, Yahweh, or I am who I am. Apparently, there are no vowels in the name Yahweh. It's made up of four consonants. Yod, He, Vav, He. Yod. Do you hear it? It's kind of airy. Those constants almost breathy, like a, a breath. This might be a bit of a stretch, I understand, but I like entertaining this idea that could it be that the first thing we do when we are born is to say part of God's name? And the last thing we do before we die is to say God's name? And the thing we must do constantly throughout the day when we're awake or asleep is to say God's name. What does Psalm 150 say? Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. This breath starts with God and sustains us until we enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. We need this breath every day to give us life. But do we see other examples of God giving us provisions that we need on a daily basis? And how often? Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, God is reminding people that Moses, uh, through Moses, he has chosen Israel to be his people, and he's reminding them that how he was faithful to them through their 40 years in the desert. He said, And the Lord humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he may make you know that man does not live on bread alone, but he lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In this verse, we hear God's design is for us to live by the words that come from the mouth, the breath of God every day. He's using the simple analogy of food to show us our constant need for scripture. As we need to eat every day to sustain our bodies, we need God's word every day to sustain our souls, that we taste and see that the Lord is good. One of the phrases that our culture has invented over the last several years is the word hangry. When you take the word hunger and angry and put them together, 
uh, became so popular that Oxford added it to their dictionary in 2018. And there's a part of me that wonders if that phrase is just an excuse to be able to say what we want to afterward, like, no offense, but uh, I do think it could be helpful not to excuse someone's behavior, but maybe to help explain it. Um, I noticed uh, in our marriage from uh, first couple years after we were married, uh, my wife would ask me when I, if we were having a discussion uh, when I had last had a snack or if I needed something to eat. <laughs> so it may apply to, to me as well. So maybe some good parts of it. But think about it spiritually. Have you ever noticed a spiritual hanger about yourself? A time when you notice your words or heart are especially off course? What are you hungering for? Could it be that your heart's desire is for intimacy? And you have a yearning in your soul for your savior? It's moments like this that Paul calls us to take every thought captive. We can pray, God, what is my motivation for doing this? Why am I responding in this way? How are you using these emotions that you gave me to highlight my heart's sinfulness in order to remind me of my need for you? Thank you that I am not a slave to this sin, but I'm a new creation who's already received a new heart from you. Help me to act as your image bearer and to glorify you with my words, thoughts, and deeds. So if God wants us to read all of scripture, he wants us to ingest it daily, why would we make this commitment? Could it be worth all that time and effort? The next uh, passage, phrase in our passage answers this by declaring that this God-breathed scripture is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Now, the word profitable may set off some excited bells for some of us in here. Uh, we love profit, and as the world's number one economy, we are very, very good at it. In fact, we love finance so much it is riddled throughout our language. Um, we ask people if they're interested in something. We invest time in our children. A good idea may pay dividends down the road. Our jobs can be taxing. Uh, even now you are paying attention, or at least pretending to. Thank you. <laughs> but Paul has warned us already about being lovers of money. And he's not giving Timothy a stock tip here when he brings up profit. Instead, he's listing the benefits of God's word to him. Teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. What do these profitable things lead to? A great retirement? No. It's a complete man of God who is equipped for every good work. Do you notice those frequency words again? Complete man, every good work. I mean, we already established earlier in this chapter that each one of us should be avoided based on our actions. Clearly, we are the ones who are not complete. Not even Timothy was. But here's the truth. Jesus is that complete man who did every good work. And the good news for us is he has made us alive in him through his saving grace by dying on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says this, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him who, who, who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he 
or she is a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The Chinese pastor Watchman Nee gave a series of sermons that were turned into a book called The Normal Christian Life. In one of those sermons, he used a simple analogy of a page in a book to help us understand what that passage means. Let's say that this blank piece of paper is my life, pretty apt and appropriate. Uh, let's say that this book is Jesus and all his completed works. If you add me to this book of life, I'm not really adding anything but possibly getting in the way, but I'm now part of him. And wherever this book goes, I'm going. If I give it to the Ha family, then I, there I am also, because I am in Christ. And similar, since we are in Christ, we are a new creation and part of something much bigger and more glorious than ourselves. We are part of Jesus. And we do good works not because we try harder or work more, but because we've already been made in his perfect image. He has covered, and we're not going to do it perfectly, but he has already covered those shortcomings by his death on the cross. Why do we read scripture? So we encounter this risen and complete man of God and that his spirit, his breath, would dwell in us as we abide in him and bear fruit. Now, earlier in this chapter, we heard Paul give all these actions that are worthy of reproof and correction, but I would be remiss if I didn't also include a reproof he gives a few verses later in chapter 4 of Timothy. In verse 3, he says, For a time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul wrote this 2,000 years ago. <clears throat> but do you see the striking relevance this warning has to a church who has access to any podcast, YouTube video, or TikTok suggestion? First century Paul says they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. Call me a technology teacher, but that sounds like Paul just defined a social media algorithm, an echo chamber designed to show us more of what we want to hear and what we want to see. We need to be cautious when we only hear what we want to hear from those around us. Where is the space for humility that says, I may be wrong? Does that sound like someone who's ready to be reproofed or corrected? As Shelby said a few weeks ago, we need to be hospitable to even people we don't like. And sometimes it means humbly and curiously pursuing conversations with those who may hold a different view than we do. Now, don't hear me saying that God can never use media to draw other people to himself. He can and he does. A gospel-centered podcast and YouTube sermons are, can be a great complement in our spiritual lives. But the problem occurs when we substitute a podcast for a local pastor, a clip for a community group, or a church family who knows you, loves you, and walks alongside of you. This, this shifts the dynamic from a one-way transaction where you are consuming content to an interactive relationship where you can receive from others and give to others. God designed us to be with each other. In his infinite wisdom, he has provided the local church to equip us to live as gospel-centered, grace-driven, and mission-minded disciples in the age that he has put us in today. We've covered what we should read in Scripture, how often we are to read it, and why we read it. 
Let's take, talk for a few minutes about how we can read it. I wanted to share something with you that I've learned from my education background. Uh, early on in teaching, I got a degree in elementary reading and literacy. I was teaching fifth grade at the time and I realized that reading was the area I felt least uh, equipped and good at teaching. So uh, in my courses, I learned about skills like decoding, word attack, phonics, fluency, and ultimately how they all work together to help develop the ultimate goal of a reader, comprehension of the written text. As we grow in our ability to read, we also start developing different skills of reading. A business owner might skim through the news to get a basic gist of what's going on in the world to see how it would affect the company. A parent making dinner could scan through a recipe and see what ingredients are needed. A med student would use intensive reading to pay attention to each detail to prepare for an exam and deepen her understanding of the human body. A teenager might get lost in a book following the plot twists of his uh, favorite character. But have you ever thought about the type of reading with which you approach reading your Bible? I would suggest that there is a time for each of these different types of reading. Maybe you skim through Psalm 119 looking for the different ways that uh, David describes God's law. Or you, before you meet with your community group, you scan a passage to remind yourself of the topic and ideas. Or maybe during your reading, you, you realize one verse or one part of a word jumps out at you. The Spirit lays it on your heart and you just can't get past it before you study it. Try to wring every single possible connection out of it. Or maybe you get caught up in the greatest story ever told and you end up reading whole books of the Bible just to get a better sense of that story arc. When we lived in Philadelphia, one of the churches that my school was connected to at the time was uh, 10th Presbyterian Church. Their senior pastor was a man named Dr. James Montgomery Boyce. And Dr. Boyce was, would preach, often preach a sermon and have that sermon go directly into a, a Bible commentary. Uh, and he was known for slowly walking his church through a book of the Bible. Um, we were just in Hebrews, and you may feel like there's times where Redemption Hill spends a long time going through a book of the Bible. Uh, but guess how long he took his congregation through Romans? A decade. Uh, in fact, he spent three weeks on one word. <laughs> the word, therefore, at the start of Romans 8. Because you have to talk what that word is there for and unpack everything that has been said before that. So just like each one of these styles of reading is important, we lose something if we only read the Bible in one way. I would encourage you to reflect on how you read your Bible. If it's a chapter or two a day, great, do that. But when is the last time you took a half hour on just a word or a phrase to let it sit with you, to chew on it, dissect it? We were with my family in, uh, this Christmas in Michigan, and to celebrate my um, being together, my parents often make our family's favorite meal of flank steak. Uh, the steak is wonderful on its own, but my parents marinate it overnight, and when that happens, it becomes a delicacy. Uh, do you know how marinade works in meat? It does two things. It adds spices and flavors to it, but also breaks down the tissue to create pockets for more flavor to enhance the whole taste experience. Scripture is like that steak, or portobello mushroom if you prefer. But as we sit and let the meat of Scripture marinate in the sauce of time, we're allowing us to enjoy Scripture for the delicacy that it is. 
by pondering and sitting with a passage, looking at different commentaries, memorizing it, exploring cross-references, where we're at, adding these spices to the existing scripture. It takes time, and that's what that works like this marinades acid, breaking down the tough tissue in our heart and softening it to absorb and process God's word. What about extensive reading? When's the last time you sat down and read through a whole book of the Bible at once? If you've never done it, you can start with 2nd or 3rd John. It's one chapter. You can accomplish it and feel good. But also think about reading one of the whole Gospels straight through, like Mark, just to capture the richness and the story arc of the life of Jesus. Now, you might say, who has time for this? I mean, I've got a busy life with responsibilities, with family, coworkers, neighbors, jobs, sports. How can I make Bible reading part of my day? Well, we all make time for the things that are important to us. Think back to one of those finance phrases that we use, pay attention. What are we paying attention to? Are the events on my calendar or the screens in my house or in my pocket the most profitable use of my time? What is it teaching me? What worldviews is it instilling in me? What lies is it promoting? And what truths is it ignoring? And if scripture really does all the things that it promises to do, why would I not start my day with it and then build the rest of my schedule around it as the cornerstone and trying to fit it into my day? Now, a word of caution before you jump in and start reading your Bible every day. Uh, Just like with all good things, sin can twist even a God-given desire to read scripture. It is helpful for me to check my motivation and pray before I read my Bible. Growing up, I had a teen study Bible, and in the back it had a daily checkbox so I could check off if I had read the assigned chapter for that day. And while I appreciate that goal, my own sinful heart took a good thing and twisted it to a place of legalism. Reading my Bible turned into a works righteousness pursuit where I could use that Bible checkbox as a literal checkbox of my heart. When I wondered how I was doing with God, I would think back, did I read my Bible? I did. I'm good. If I hadn't read, I wasn't good, and I wasn't close to God. But God's love for me does not depend on any of my actions, even enjoying the gift of his word. When God sees me, he doesn't see me. He sees his son, Jesus. And there's nothing I can do to make him love me any more, and there's nothing I can do to make him love me any less. The Reese's candy slogan says there's no wrong way to eat a Reese's. And you might say there's no wrong way to read your Bible. But as we've seen, for all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable to us. And God can use even random passages to speak to us and draw us to himself in order to sanctify us and make us more complete. Now that being said, there are benefits to pursuing a program or a guide that God has used to draw others to himself. And there are a lot of Bible reading programs out there that have benefited benefited countless Christians. We're going to take a few minutes to look at one of those programs that a lot of folks in our church have enjoyed. Uh, Every week in our bulletin, or as my daughter two years ago called it, the ticket you get when you come to church, uh, there's a section here called Seeing Jesus in His Word, where you see an Old Testament chapter and a New Testament chapter each day of the week. We get these passages from a program that our church partners with called Seeing Jesus Together, which used to be called Community Bible Reading. And the the goal is for Christians to encounter Jesus as they read scripture on their own or together 
as we all seek to live out as disciples of Jesus in this age. And as these disciples, we're called to disciple one another, even through Scripture, especially through Scripture. And the premise of seeing Jesus together is simply this, to look for Jesus and see him in each passage of Scripture. Seeing Jesus together does this in a very simple framework, through the lens of A-C-T-S. What can I adore God based on this passage? What can I confess about my sin? What can I thank Jesus for his salvation? And what can I ask the Holy Spirit for in supplication to help sanctify me even more? There are many questions you can ask and should ask yourself as you're reading scripture, but just by using that simple framework, we're able to tease out just a little bit more of the richness that each passage provides and how it ultimately points us to the gospel, the good news that Jesus came to rescue sinners like us. Jesus models this in Luke 24. After he's, uh, he's appeared after his resurrection to two of his disciples who are walking on the road and trying to figure out why Jesus' body is missing from the tomb. Verse 25 says, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the scripture, prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. What a Bible study. Jesus, the word made flesh and dwelling among us, walking through scripture and showing these disciples how it all points to him. Seeing Jesus together is not a Bible study or a fact-finding mission to fill in blanks. It's, it's a fellowship with the Father. We spend time with the almighty creator of heaven and earth, allowing him to speak to us, to teach, correct, reproof, and train us for every good work. Personally, I really enjoy looking at the Old Testament as a kind of a where's Waldo hunt for Jesus in each passage. How every, who is, he is in fact the main character, all these fallible and imperfect characters point to in some way. Each verse points us to that complete and perfect man of God. Pick a character. Let's say the strong man, Samson. How does he point to Jesus? Well, as Samson put out his hands on the Philistine pillars to sacrifice himself for God's people, Jesus put out his hands to sacrifice himself for God's people. Or Esther, who despite being royalty was willing to put down risk, put her life on the line to save God's people. King Jesus left his throne and actually gave up his life for God's people. If you'd like to know more about seeing Jesus together and to walk through a passage, Matt Hartman is leading a two-week training uh, tonight and next Sunday at 6 o'clock at the church building. Now, I've had the privilege of being in a Seeing Jesus Together group with Matt, and it is like salve, salve for your soul. So if you want to give Seeing Jesus Together a try, I encourage you to attend these trainings and learn how God might use this tool in your life. But regardless of what method or program or just reading scripture you do, I encourage you to simply open your Bible, talk to the Holy Spirit to ask him to guide you, that breath to be inside of you, and start reading. We're going to end today with how John begins his gospel in John 1. He said, In the beginning there was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
we use the word Emmanuel to mean God with us. And we just celebrated Christmas where we considered Jesus being born and coming to earth to be with us. This same Emmanuel is the same word that John described. And we get to open up our Bible and encounter Jesus as we read all of it daily in order that we may be complete, equipped for every good work. And the greatest work that was done was by that complete man of God who after living a perfect life allowed himself to be crucified as a sinner. As a first Adam needed breath to breathe the breath of life into him, the second Adam allowed himself to have the, le- the breath leave him, satisfying the wrath of God by the grace of God so that the people of God may one day live with him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, thank you for the gift of your word, for the gift of language, for giving us letters that combine to make words, that combine to make sentences, that make ideas. Father, I I thank you for the ideas you give us throughout Scripture. I pray that the ideas shared this morning, uh, any of the words that I said, if they were not from you, that they would fall to the ground. We would forget them. And you, you would take your Holy Spirit and help us to remember the words that are from you. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. Thank you for your faithfulness throughout time. Help us as we, your imperfect creations, uh, walk through our days in Richmond. Father, we are going to fail. Uh, Some of us, we are failing right now. Thank you for your grace that covers all those things, that expects those, and that is there waiting for us, for us to enjoy grace with you. Give us your humility to say those things and to enjoy them with you. I pray these things all in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Eric DeBoer, given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.org.